Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.com. Org. Recording by Andy Minter The Card A Story of Adventure in the Five Towns by Arnold Bennett Chapter five The Mercantile Marine one The decisive scene, henceforward historic, occurred in the shanty known as John's Cabin. John being the unacknowledged leader of the Longshore population under the tail of Llandidno Pier. The cabin, festooned with cordage, was lighted by an oil lamp of a primitive model, and round the orange case on which the lamp was balanced sat Denry, Cregeen, the owner of the lifeboat, and John himself, to give, as it were, a semi-official character to whatever was afoot. "'Well, here you are,' said Denry, and handed to Cregeen a piece of paper." "'What's this I'm asking ye?' said Cregeen, taking the paper in his large fingers and peering at it as though it had been a papyrus. But he knew quite well what it was. It was a cheque for twenty-five pounds. What he did not know was that with the ten pounds paid in cash earlier in the day, it represented a very large part indeed of such of Denry's savings as had survived his engagement to Ruth Earp. Cregeen took a pen, as though it had been a match-end, and wrote a receipt. Then, after finding a stamp in a pocket of his waistcoat under his jersey, he put it in his mouth, and lost it there for a long time. Finally Denry got the receipt, certifying that he was the owner of the lifeboat, formerly known as Llandidno, but momentarily without a name, together with all her gear and sails. "'Are you going to live in her?' the rather curt John inquired. "'Not in her. On her,' said Denry. And he went out onto the sand and shingle, leaving John and Cregeen to complete the sail to Cregeen of the Fleetwing, a small cutter specially designed to take twelve persons forth for a pleasant sail in the bay. If Cregeen had not had a fancy for the Fleetwing, and a perfect lack of the money to buy her, Denry might never have been able to induce him to sell the lifeboat. Under another portion of the pier, Denry met a sailor with a long white beard, the aged Simeon, who had been one of the crew that rescued the Jalbar, but whom his colleagues appeared to regard rather as an ornament than as a motive force. "'It's all right,' said Denry, and Simeon, in silence, nodded his head slowly several times. "'I shall give you thirty shilling for the week,' said Denry. And that venerable head oscillated again in the moonlit gloom, and rocked gradually to a standstill. Presently the head said in shrill, low tones, "'I've seen three of them Norwegian chaps. Two of them can no more speak English than a babe unborn. 
nor understand what ye say to em though if her ball did their ear rose so much the better said denry i showed em that sovereign said the bearded head wagging again well said denry you won't forget six o'clock to-morrow morning you'd better say five the head suggested quiet alike five then denry agreed and he departed to st asaph's road burdened with a tremendous thought the thought was i've gone and done it this time now that the transaction was accomplished and could not be undone he admitted to himself that he had never been more mad he could scarcely comprehend what had led him to do that which he had done but he obscurely imagined that his caprice for the possession of sea-going craft must somehow be the result of his singular adventure with the pantechnicon in the canal at bursley he was so preoccupied with material interests as to be capable of forgetting for a quarter of an hour at a stretch that in all essential respects his life was wrecked and he had nothing to hope for save hollow worldly success he knew that ruth would return the ring he could almost see the postman holding the little cardboard cube which would contain the rendered ring he had loved and loved tragically that was how he put it in his unspoken thoughts but the truth was merely that he had loved something too expensive now the dream was done and a man of disillusion walked along the parade towards st asaph's road among revellers a man with a past a man who had probed women a man who had nothing to learn about the sex and amid all the tragedy of his heart and all his apprehensions concerning hollow worldly success little thoughts of absurd unimportance kept running about like clockwork mice in his head such as that it would be a bit of a bore to have to tell people at bursley that his engagement which truly had thrilled the town was broken off humiliating that and after all ruth was a glittering gem among women was there another girl in bursley so smart so effective so truly ornate then he comforted himself with the reflection i'm certainly the only man that ever ended an engagement by just saying rothschild this was probably true but it did not help him to sleep two the next morning at five twenty the youthful sun was shining on the choppy waters of the irish sea just off the little orme to the west of lantidno bay oscillating on the uneasy waves was denry's lifeboat and by the nodding bearded head three ordinary british longshoremen a norwegian who could speak english of two syllables and two other norwegians who by a strange neglect of education could speak nothing but norwegian Close under the headland, near a morsel of beach, lay the remains of the Hjalmar, in an attitude of repose. It was as if the Hjalmar, after a long struggle, had lain down like a cab-horse, and said to the tempest, "'Do what you like now.' "'Yes,' the venerable head was piping, "'us can come out comfortable in twenty minutes, unless the tide be setting east strong. And as for getting back, it'll be the same other way round, if you understand me.' There could be no question that Simeon had come out comfortable, but he was the coxswain. The rowers seemed to be perspiringly aware that the boat was vast and beamy. "'Shall we row up to it?' Simeon inquired, pointing to the wreck. Then a pale face appeared above the gunwale, 
and an expiring, imploring voice said, "'No, we'll go back,' whereupon the pale face vanished again. Denry had never before been outside the bay. In the navigation of pantechnicons on the squall-swept basins of canals he might have been a great master, but he was unfitted for the open sea. At that moment he would have been almost ready to give the lifeboat and all that he owned for the privilege of returning to land by train. The inward journey was so long that Denry lost hope of ever touching his native island again. And then there was a bump, and he disembarked, with hope burning up cheerfully in his bosom, and it was quarter to six. By the first post, which arrived at half-past seven, there came a brown package. The ring, he thought, starting horribly. But the package was a cube of three inches, and would have held a hundred rings. He undid the cover, and saw on half a sheet of note-paper the words, "'Thank you so much for the lovely time you gave me. I hope you will like this. Nellie.' He was touched. If Ruth was hard, mercenary, costly, her young and ingenuous companion could at any rate be grateful and sympathetic. Yes, he was touched. He had imagined himself to be dead to all human affections, but it was not so. The package contained chocolate, and his nose at once perceived that it was chocolate impregnated with lemon, the surprising but agreeable compound accidentally invented by Nellie on the previous day at the pier buffet. The little thing must have spent a part of the previous afternoon in preparing it, and she must have put the package in the post at Crewe. Secretive and delightful little thing! After his recent experience beyond the bay, he had imagined himself to be incapable of ever eating again, but it was not so. The lemon gave a peculiar, astringent, appetising, settling quality to the chocolate, and he ate even with gusto. The result was that instead of waiting for the nine o'clock boarding-house breakfast, he hurried energetically into the streets, and called on a jobbing printer whom he had seen on the previous evening. As Ruth had said, there is nothing like chocolate for sustaining you. 3. At ten o'clock, two Norwegian sailors, who could only smile in answer to the questions which assailed them, were distributing the following handbill on the parade. Wreck of the Shalmar. Heroism at Llandidno. Every hour at eleven, twelve, two, three, four, five, and six o'clock. The identical, guaranteed, lifeboat, which rescued the crew of the Shalmar, will leave the beach for the scene of the wreck, manned by Simeon Edwards, the oldest boatman in Llandidno, and by members of the rescued crew, genuine Norwegians, guaranteed. Simeon Edwards, coxswain. Return fare, with use of cork-belt and lifelines if desired, two shillings and sixpence. A unique opportunity. A unique experience. P.S. The bravery of the lifeboatmen has been the theme of the press throughout the Principality and neighbouring counties. E. H. Machin. At eleven o'clock there was an eager crowd down on the beach, where, with some planks and a piece of rock, Simeon had arranged an embarkation pier for the lifeboat. One man in overall stood up to his knees in the water, and escorted passengers up the planks, while Simeon's confidence-generating beard received them into the broad waist of the boat. The rowers wore sou'westers, and were secured to the craft by lifelines, 
and these conveniences were also offered, with life-belts, to the intrepid excursionists. A paper was pinned in the stern, licensed to carry fourteen. Denry had just paid the fee. But quite forty people were anxious to make the first voyage. "'No more!' shrilled Simeon solemnly, and the wader scrambled in, and the boat slid away. "'Where's Pease?' shrilled Simeon. He collected one pound fifteen, and slowly buttoned it up in the right-hand pocket of his blue trousers. "'Now, my lads, with a will,' he gave the order, and then, with deliberate method, he lighted his pipe, and the lifeboat shot away. Close by the planks stood a young man in a negligent attitude, and with a look on his face as if to say, "'Please do not imagine that I have the slightest interest in this affair.' He stared consistently out to sea, until the boat had disappeared round the little orm. And then he took a few turns on the sands, in and out amid the castles. His heart was beating in a most disconcerting manner. After a time he resumed his perusal of the sea, and the lifeboat reappeared and grew larger and larger, and finally arrived at the spot from which it had departed, only higher up the beach, because the tide was rising and Simeon debarked first, and there was a small blue and red model of a lifeboat in his hand, which he shook to a sound of coins. "'For the lifeboat fund! For the lifeboat fund!' he gravely intoned. Every debarking passenger dropped a coin into the slit. In five minutes the boat was refilled, and Simeon had put the value of fourteen more half-crowns into his pocket. The lips of the young man on the beach moved, and he murmured, "'That makes over three pounds. Well, I'm dashed.' At the hour appointed for dinner, he went to St. Asaph's Road, but could eat nothing. He could only keep repeating very softly to himself, "'Well, I'm dashed.' Throughout the afternoon, the competition for places in the lifeboat grew keener and more dangerous. Denry's craft was by no means the sole craft engaged in carrying people to see the wreck. There were dozens of boats in the business, which had suddenly sprung up that morning, the sea being then fairly inoffensive for the first time since the height of the storm. But the other boats simply took what the lifeboat left. The guaranteed identity of the lifeboat, and of the Norseman, who replied to questions in gibberish, and of Simeon himself, the sou'westers, the lifebelts, and the lines even the collection for the lifeboat fund at the close of the voyage. All these matters resolved themselves into a fascination which Llandidno could not resist. And in regard to the collection a remarkable crisis arose. The model of a lifeboat became full, gorged to the slot, and the local secretary of the fund had the key. The model was dispatched to him by special messenger to open and to empty and in the meantime Simeon used his sou'wester as a collecting-box. This contretemps was impressive. At night Denry received twelve pounds odd at the hands of Simeon Edwards. He showered the odd in largesse on his heroic crew, who had also received many tips. By the evening post the fatal ring arrived from Ruth, as he anticipated. He was just about to throw it into the sea, when he thought better of the idea and stuck it in his pocket. He tried still to feel that his life had been blighted by Ruth, but he could not. The twelve pounds, largely in silver, weighed so heavy in his pocket. He said to himself, "'Of course, this can't last.' 
Four. Then came the day when he first heard someone saying, discreetly, behind him, "'That's the lifeboat chap,' or more briefly, "'That's him,' implying that in all Llandidno him could only mean one person. And for a time he went about the streets self-consciously. However, that self-consciousness soon passed off, and he wore his fame as easily as he wore his collar. The lifeboat trips to the Shalmar became a feature of daily life in Llandidno. The pronunciation of the ship's name went through a troublous period. Some said the J ought to be pronounced to the exclusion of the H, and others maintained the contrary. In the end, the first two letters were both abandoned utterly, also the last, but nobody had ever paid any attention to the last. The facetious had a trick of calling the wreck Inkerman. This definite settlement of the pronunciation of the name was a sign that the pleasure-seekers of Llandidno had definitely fallen in love with the lifeboat-trip habit. Denry's timid fear that the phenomenon which put money into his pocket could not continue was quite falsified. It continued violently, and Denry wished that the Chalmar had been wrecked a month earlier. He calculated that the tardiness of the Chalmar in wrecking itself had involved him in a loss of some four hundred pounds. If only the catastrophe had happened early in July, instead of early in August, and he had been there. Why, if forty Shalmars had been wrecked, and their forty crews saved by forty different lifeboats, and Denry had bought all the lifeboats, he could have filled them all. Still, the regularity of his receipts was extremely satisfactory and comforting. The thing had somehow the air of being a miracle— at any rate of being connected with magic. It seemed to him that nothing could have stopped the visitors to Llandidno from fighting for places in his lifeboat, and paying handsomely for the privilege. They had begun the practice, and they looked as if they meant to go on with the practice eternally. He thought that the monotony of it would strike them unfavourably. But no! He thought that they would revolt against doing what everyone had done. But no! Hundreds of persons arrived fresh from the railway station every day, and they all appeared to be drawn to that lifeboat as to a magnet. They all seemed to know instantly and instinctively that to be correct in Llandidno they must make at least one trip in Denry's lifeboat. He was pocketing an income which far exceeded his most golden visions, and therefore, naturally, his first idea was to make that income larger and larger still. He commenced by putting up the price of the afternoon trips. There was a vast deal too much competition for seats in the afternoon. This competition led to quarrels, unseemly language, and deplorable loss of temper. It also led to loss of time. Denry was therefore benefiting humanity by charging three shillings after two o'clock. This simple and benign device equalised the competition throughout the day and made Denry richer by seven or eight pounds a week. But his fertility of invention did not stop there. One morning the earliest excursionists saw a sort of Robinson Crusoe marooned on the strip of beach near the wreck. All that Hartle's fate had left him appeared to be a machine on a tripod, and a few black bags, and there was no shelter for him save a shallow cave. The poor fellow was quite respectably dressed— Simeon steered the boat round by the beach, which shelved down sharply, and as he did so the Robinson Crusoe hid his head in cloth, as though ashamed, or as though he had gone mad and believed himself to be an ostrich. 
Then, apparently, he thought the better of it, and gazed boldly forth again. And the boat passed on its starboard side, within a dozen feet of him and his machine. Then it put about, and passed on the port side, and the same thing happened on every trip, and the last trippers of the day left Robinson Crusoe on the strip of beach in his solitude. The next morning a photographer's shop on the parade pulled down its shutters and displayed posters over all the upper part of its windows, and the lower part of the windows held sixteen different large photographs of the lifeboat broadside on, the likenesses of over a hundred visitors, many of them with sou'westers, cork belts, and lifelines, could be clearly distinguished in those picturesque groups. A notice said, "'Copies of any of these magnificent permanent holographs can be supplied, handsomely mounted, at a charge of two shillings each. Orders executed in rotation, and delivered by post if necessary. It is respectfully requested that cash be paid with order, otherwise orders cannot be accepted.' Very few of those who had made the trip could resist the fascination of a photograph of themselves in a real lifeboat manned by real heroes and real Norwegians on real waves, especially if they had worn the gear appropriate to lifeboats. The windows of the shop were beset throughout the day, with crowds anxious to see who was in the lifeboat, and who had come out well, and who was a perfect fright. The orders on the first day amounted to over fifteen pounds, for not everybody was content with one photograph. The novelty was acute and enchanting, and it renewed itself each day. "'Let's go down and look at the lifeboat photographs,' people would say, when they were wondering what to do next. Some persons, who had not taken nicely, would perform a special trip in the lifeboat, and would wear special clothes, and compose special faces for the ordeal. The mayor of Ashby de la Zouche for that year ordered two hundred copies of a photograph which showed himself in the centre for presentation as New Year's cards. On the mornings after very dull days or wet days, when photography had been impossible or unsatisfactory, Flandidno felt that something lacked. Here it may be mentioned that inclement weather, of which for the rest there was little, scarcely interfered with Denry's receipts. Imagine a lifeboat being deterred by rain or by a breath of wind. There were tarpaulins. When the tide was strong and adverse, male passengers were allowed to pull without extra charge, though naturally they would give a trifle to this or that member of the professional crew. Denry's arrangement with the photographer was so simple that a child could have grasped it. The photographer paid him sixpence on every photograph sold. This was Denry's only connection with the photographer. The sixpences totalled over a dozen pounds a week. Regardless of cost, Denry reprinted his article from the Staffordshire Signal, descriptive of the night of the wreck, with a photograph of the lifeboat and its crew, and presented a copy to every client of his photographic department. 5. Landedno was next titillated by the mysterious chocolate remedy, that made its first appearance in a small boat that plied off Robinson Crusoe's strip of beach. Not infrequently passengers in the lifeboat were inconvenienced by displeasing and even distressing sensations, as Denry had once been inconvenienced. He felt deeply for them. The chocolate remedy was designed to alleviate the symptoms while captivating the palate. It was one of the most agreeable remedies that the wit of man ever invented. 
It tasted like chocolate, and yet there was an astringent flavour of lemon in it, a flavour that flattered the stomach into a good opinion of itself, and seemed to say, all's right with the world. The stuff was retailed in sixpenny packets, and you were advised to eat only a very little of it at a time, and not to masticate, but merely to permit melting. Then the chocolate remedy came to be sold on the lifeboat itself, and you were informed that if you took it before starting on the wave, no wave could disarrange you. And, indeed, many persons who followed this advice suffered no distress, and were proud accordingly, and duly informed the world. Then the chocolate remedy began to be sold everywhere. Young people bought it because they enjoyed it, and perfectly ignored the advice against overindulgence and against mastication. The chocolate remedy penetrated like the refrain of a popular song to other seaside places. It was on sale from Morecambe to Barmouth, and at all the landing stages of the steamers for the Isle of Man and Anglesey. Nothing surprised Denry so much as the vogue of the chocolate remedy. It was a serious anxiety to him, and he muddled both the manufacture and distribution of the remedy, from simple ignorance and inexperience. His chief difficulty at first had been to obtain small cakes of chocolate that were not stamped with the maker's name or mark. Chocolate manufacturers seemed to have a passion for imprinting their Quakerly names on every bit of stuff they sold. Having at length obtained a supply, he was silly enough to spend time in preparing the remedy himself in his bedroom. He might as well have tried to feed the British Army from his mother's kitchen. At length he went to a confectioner in Rill and a greengrocer in Llandidno, and by giving away half the secret to each, he contrived to keep the whole secret to himself. But even then he was manifestly unequal to the situation created by the demand for the chocolate remedy. It was a situation that needed the close attention of half a dozen men of business. It was quite different from the affair of the lifeboat. One night a man who had been staying a day or two in the boarding-house in St. Asaph's Road said to Denry, "'Look here, mister, I'll go straight to the point. What'll you take?' And he explained what he meant. What would Denry take for the entire secret and rights of the chocolate remedy, and the use of the name Machin, without which none was genuine? "'What do you offer?' Denry asked. "'Well, I'll give you a hundred pound down, and that's my last word.' Denry was staggered. "'A hundred pounds for simply nothing at all? For dipping bits of chocolate in lemon-juice?' He shook his head. "'I'll take two hundred, he replied. And he got two hundred. It was probably the worst bargain that he ever made in his life, for the chocolate remedy continued obstinately in demand for ten years afterwards. But he was glad to be rid of the thing. It was spoiling his sleep and wearing him out. He had other worries. The boatman of Flandidno regarded him as an enemy of the human race. If they had not been nature's gentlemen— they would have burned him alive at a stake. Cregeen, in particular, consistently referred to him in terms which could not have been more severe, had Denry been the assassin of Cregeen's wife and seven children. In daring to make over a hundred pounds a week out of a ramshackle old lifeboat that Cregeen had sold him for thirty-five pounds, Denry was outraging Cregeen's moral code. Cregeen had paid thirty-five pounds for the fleet wing a craft immeasurably superior to Denry's nameless tub. And was Cregeen making a hundred pounds a week out of it? Not a hundred shillings. Cregeen genuinely thought that he had a right to half Denry's profits. 
Old Simeon, too, seemed to think that he had a right to a large percentage of the same profits. And the corporation, though it was notorious that excursionists visited the town purposely to voyage in the lifeboat, the corporation made difficulties about the embarking and disembarking, about the photographic strip of beach, about the crowds on the pavement outside the photograph shop. Denry learnt that he had committed the sin of not being a native of Flandidno. He was a stranger, and he was taking money out of the town. At times he wished he could have been born again. His friend and saviour was the local secretary of the lifeboat institution, who happened to be a town councillor. This worthy man, to whom Denry paid over a pound a day, was invaluable to him. Further, Denry was invited, they commanded, to contribute to nearly every church, chapel, mission and charity in Carnarvonshire, Flintshire and other counties. His usefulness was not accepted as an excuse, and as his gross profits could be calculated by any dunce who chose to stand on the beach for half a day, it was not easy for him to pretend that he was on the brink of starvation. He could only ward off attacks by stating, with vague, convinced sadness, that his expenses were much greater than any one could imagine. In September, when the moon was red and full, and the sea glassy, he announced a series of nocturnal rocket fates. The lifeboat, hung with Chinese lanterns, put out in the evening, charged five shillings, and, followed by half the harbour's fleet of rowing boats and cutters, proceeded to the neighbourhood of the strip of beach, where a rocket apparatus had been installed by the help of the lifeboat secretary. The mortar was trained, there was a flash, a whiz, a line of fire, and a rope fell out of the sky across the lifeboat. The effect was thrilling, and roused cheers. Never did the lifeboat institution receive such an advertisement as Denry gave it, gratis. After the rocketing, Denry stood alone on the slopes of the little orm, and watched the lanterns floating home over the water, and heard the lusty mirth of his clients in the still air. It was an emotional experience for him. "'By Jove!' he said. "'I've wakened this town up.'" Six. One morning, in the very last sad days of the dying season, when his receipts had dropped to the miserable figure of about fifty pounds a week, Denry had a great and pleasing surprise. He met Nellie on the parade. It was a fact that the recognition of that innocent, childlike, blushing face gave him joy. Nellie was with her father, Councillor Cotterill, and her mother. The councillor was a speculative builder, who was erecting several streets of British homes in the new quarter above the new municipal park at Bursley. Denry had already encountered him once or twice in the way of business. He was a big and portly man of forty-five, with a thin face and a consciousness of prosperity. At one moment you would think him a jolly, bluff fellow, and at the next you would be disconcerted by a note of cunning or of harshness. Mrs. Councillor Cotterill was one of those women who fail to live up to the ever-increasing height of their husbands. Afflicted with an eternal stage-fright, she never opened her close-pressed lips in society, though a few people knew that she could talk as fast and effectively as any one. Difficult to set in motion, her vocal machinery was equally difficult to stop. She generally wore a low bonnet and a mantle. The Cotterills had been spending a fortnight at the Isle of Man, and they had come direct from Douglas to Llandinno by steamer, where they meant to pass two or three days. 
They were staying at Craigadon, at the eastern end of the parade. "'Well, young man,' said Councillor Cotterill, and he kept on young man in Denry with an easy patronage, which Denry could scarcely approve of. "'I bet I've made more money this summer than you have with all your jerrying,' said Denry, silently, to the councillor's back, while the Cotterill family were inspecting the historic lifeboat on the beach. Councillor Cotterill said frankly that one reason for their calling at Llandedno was his desire to see this singular lifeboat, about which there really had been a great deal of talk in the five towns. The admission comforted Denry. Then the councillor recommenced his young manning. "'Look here,' said Denry, carelessly. "'You must come and dine with me one night, all of you, will you?' "'Nobody who has not passed at least twenty years in a district where people dine at one o'clock, and dining after dark is regarded as a wild idiosyncrasy of earls, can appreciate the effect of this speech.' The councillor, when he had recovered himself, said that they would be pleased to dine with him. Mrs. Cotterill's tight lips were seen to move, but not heard, and Nellie glowed. "'Yes,' said Denry, "'come and dine with me at the Majestic.' The name of the Majestic put an end to the young Manning. It was a new hotel by the pier, and advertised itself as the most luxurious hotel in the Principality, which was bold of it, having regard to the magnificence of caravanserais at Cardiff. It had two hundred bedrooms, and waiters who talked English imperfectly, and its prices were supposed to be fantastic. After all, the most startled and frightened person of the four was perhaps Denry. He had never given a dinner to anybody. He had never even dined at night. He had never been inside the Majestic. He had never had the courage to go inside the Majestic. He had no notion of the mysterious preliminaries to the offering of a dinner in a public place. But the next morning he contracted to give away the lifeboat to a syndicate of boatmen, headed by John, their leader, for thirty-five pounds, and he swore to himself that he would do that dinner properly, even if it cost him the whole price of the boat. Then he met Mrs. Cotterill coming out of a shop. Mrs. Cotterill, owing to a strange hazard of fate, began talking at once, and Denry, as an old shorthand writer, instinctively calculated that not Thomas Allen Reed himself could have taken Mrs. Cotterill down verbatim. Her face tried to express pain, but pleasure shone out of it, for she found herself in an exciting contretemps which she could understand. "'Oh, Mr. Machin,' she said, "'what do you think's happened? I don't know how to tell you, I'm sure. Here you've arranged for that dinner to-morrow, and it's all settled, and now Miss Earp telegraphs to our Nellie to say she's coming to-morrow for a day or two with us. You know Ruth and Nellie are such friends. It's like as if what must be, isn't it? I don't know what to do, I do declare. Whatever will Ruth say at us, leaving her alone on the first night she comes? I really do think she might have—' "'You must bring her along with you,' said Denry. "'But won't you? Sh shan't you? Won't she? Won't it?' "'Not at all,' said Denry. "'Speaking for myself, I shall be delighted.' "'Well, I'm sure you're very sensible,' said Mrs. Cotterill. "'I was but saying to Mr. Cotterill over breakfast, I said to him—' "'I shall ask Councillor Rees Jones to meet you,' said Denry. "'He's one of the principal members of the town council here, "'local secretary of the Lifeboat Institution, great friend of mine.' "'Oh!' exclaimed Mrs. Cotterill. "'It'll be quite an affair.' "'It was.' Denry found, to his relief, that the only difficult part of arranging a dinner at the Majestic was the stealing of yourself to enter the gorgeous portals of the hotel. 
After that, and after murmuring that you wished to fix up a little snack, you had nothing to do but listen to suggestions, each surpassing the rest in splendour, and say yes. Similarly with the greeting of a young woman who was once to you the jewel of the world. You simply said, "'Good afternoon. How are you?' And she said the same. And you shook hands. And there you were, still alive. The one defect of the dinner was that the men were not in evening dress. Denry registered a new rule of life. Never travel without your evening dress, because you never know what may turn up. The girls were radiantly white, and after all there is nothing like white. Mrs. Cotterill was in black silk and silence, and after all there is nothing like black silk. There was champagne, there were ices. Nellie, not being permitted champagne, took her revenge in ice. Denry had found an opportunity to relate to her the history of the chocolate remedy. She said, "'How wonderful you are!' And he said it was she who was wonderful. Denry gave no information about the chocolate remedy to her father. Neither did she. As for Ruth, indubitably she was responsible for the social success of the dinner. She seemed to have the habit of these affairs. She it was who loosed tongues. Nevertheless, Denry saw her now with different eyes, and it appeared incredible to him that he had once mistaken her for the jewel of the world. At the end of the dinner, Councillor Rhys-Jones produced a sensation by rising to propose the health of their host. He referred to the superb heroism of England's lifeboatmen, and in the name of the institution thanked Denry for fifty-three pounds, which Denry's public had contributed to the funds. He said it was a noble contribution, and that Denry was a philanthropist. And he called on Councillor Cotterill to second the toast, which Councillor Cotterill did in good set terms, the result of long habit. And Denry stammered that he was much obliged, and really it was nothing. But when the toasting was finished, Councillor Cotterill lapsed somewhat into a patronising irony, as if he were jealous of a youthful success. And he did not stop at young man. He addressed Denry grandiosely as, "'My boy!' "'This life bolt. It was just an idea, my boy. Just an idea,' he said. "'Yes,' said Denry. "'But I thought of it.' "'The question is,' said the councillor, "'can you think of any more ideas as good?' "'Well,' said Denry, "'can you?' With reluctance they left the luxury of the private dining-room, and Denry surreptitiously paid the bill with a pile of sovereigns, and Councillor Rhys-Jones parted from them with lively grief. The other five walked in a row along the parade in the moonlight, and when they arrived in front of Craigadon, and the Cotterills were entering, Ruth, who loitered behind, said to Denry in a liquid voice, "'I don't feel a bit like going to sleep. I suppose you wouldn't care for a stroll?' "'Well, I dare say you're very tired,' she said. "'No,' he replied. "'It's this moonlight I'm afraid of.' And their eyes met under the door-lamp, and Ruth wished him pleasant dreams, and vanished. It was exceedingly subtle. 7. The next afternoon the Cotterills and Ruth Earp went home, and Denry with them. Flandedno was just settling into its winter sleep, and Denry's rather complex affairs had all been put in order. Though the others showed a certain lassitude, he himself was hilarious, 
Among his insignificant luggage was a new hat-box, which proved to be the origin of much gaiety. "'Just take this, will you?' he said to a porter on the platform at Llandidno Station, and held out the new hat-box with an air of calm. The porter innocently took it, and then, as the hat-box nearly jerked his arm out of the socket, gave vent to his astonishment, after the manner of porters. "'By gum, mister,' said he, "'that's heavy.' It, in fact, weighed nearly two stone. "'Yes,' said Denry, "'it's full of sovereigns, of course.' And everybody laughed. At Crewe, where they had to change, and again at Knipe and Bursley, he produced astonishment in porters, by concealing the effort with which he handed them the hat-box, as though its weight was ten ounces, and each time he made the same witticism about sovereigns. "'What have you got in that hat-box?' Ruth asked. "'Don't I tell you?' said Denry, laughing. "'Sovereigns!' Lastly, he performed the same trick on his mother. Mrs. Machin was working, as usual, in the cottage in Broom Street. Perhaps the notion of going to Llandedno for a change had not occurred to her. In any case, her presence had been necessary in Bursley, for she had frequently collected Denry's rents for him, and collected them very well. Denry was glad to see her again, and she was glad to see him, but they concealed their feelings as much as possible. When he basely handed her the hat-box, she dropped it, and roundly informed him that she was not going to have any of his pranks. After tea, whose savouriness he enjoyed quite as much as his own state dinner, he gave her a key, and asked her to open the hat-box, which she had placed on a chair. "'What is there in it?' "'A lot of jolly fine pebbles that I've been collecting on the beach,' he said. She got the hat-box onto her knee, and unlocked it, and came to a thick cloth, which she partly withdrew. And then there was a scream from Mrs. Machin, and the hat-box rolled with a terrific crash to the tiled floor, and she was ankle-deep in sovereigns. She could see sovereigns running about all over the parlour. Gradually, even the most active sovereigns decided to lie down and be quiet, and a great silence ensued. Denry's heart was beating. Mrs. Machin merely shook her head. Not often did her son deprive her of words, but this theatrical culmination of his homecoming really did leave her speechless. Late that night, rows of piles of sovereigns decorated the oval table in the parlour. "'A thousand and eleven, said Denry, at length, beneath the lamp. "'There's fifteen missing yet. We'll look for them to-morrow.' For several days afterwards, Mrs. Machin was still picking up sovereigns, Two had even gone outside the parlour and down the two steps into the back yard, and finding themselves unable to get back, had remained there. And all the town knew that the unique Denry had thought of the idea of returning home to his mother with a hat-box crammed with sovereigns. This was Denry's latest, and it employed the conversation of the borough for I don't know how long. End of chapter 5「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, 
please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter The Card A Story of Adventure in the Five Towns by Arnold Bennett. Chapter Six His Burglary. One. The fact that Denry Machin decided not to drive behind his mule to Snade Hall showed in itself that the enterprise of interviewing the Countess of Chell was not quite the simple daily trifling matter that he strove to pretend it was. The mule was part of his more recent splendour. It was aged seven, and it had cost Denry ten pounds. He had bought it off a farmer whose wife stood in St. Luke's Market. His excuse was that he needed help in getting about the five towns in pursuit of cottage rents, for his business of a rent-collector had grown. But for this purpose a bicycle would have served equally well, and would not have cost a shilling a day to feed, as the mule did, nor have shied at policemen, as the mule nearly always did. Denry had bought the mule simply because he had been struck all of a sudden with the idea of buying the mule. Some time previously, Jos Curtney, the deputy mayor, who became mayor of Bursley, on the Earl of Chell being called away to govern an Australian colony, had made an enormous sensation by buying a flock of geese and driving them home himself. Denry did not like this. He was indeed jealous, if a large mind can be jealous. Jos Curtney was old enough to be his grandfather, and had been a recognised card and character since before Denry's birth. But Denry, though so young, had made immense progress as a card, and had, perhaps justifiably, come to consider himself as the premier card, the very ace, of the town. He felt that some reply was needed to Curtney's geese, and the mule was his reply. It served excellently. People were soon asking each other whether they had heard that Denry Machin's latest was to buy a mule. He obtained a little old Victoria for another ten pounds, and a good set of harness for three guineas. The carriage was low, which enabled him, as he said, to nip in and out much more easily than in and out of a trap. In his business you did almost nothing but nip in and out. On the front seat he caused to be fitted a narrow box of Japan tin, with a formidable lock and slits on the top. This box was understood to receive the rents as he collected them. It was always guarded on journeys by a cross between a mastiff and something unknown, whose growl would have terrorised a lion-tamer. Denry himself was afraid of Roger, the dog, but he would not admit it. Roger slept in the stable behind Mrs. Machin's cottage, for which Denry paid a shilling a week. In the stable there was precisely room for Roger, the mule, and the carriage, and when Denry entered to groom or to harness, something had to go out. The equipage quickly grew into a familiar sight in the streets of the district. Denry said that it was funny without being vulgar. Certainly it amounted to a continual advertisement for him, an infinitely more effective advertisement than, for instance, a sandwichman at eighteen pence a day and costing no more, even with the licence and the shoeing. Moreover, a sandwich-man has this inferiority to a turn-out. When you have done with him, you cannot put him up at auction and sell him. Further, there are no sandwich-men in the five towns. In that democratic and independent neighbourhood, nobody would deign to be a sandwich-man. The mulish vehicular display does not end the tale of Denry's splendour. He had an office in St. Luke's Square 
and in the office was an office-boy, small but genuine, and a real copying-press, and outside it was the little square signboard, which in the days of his simplicity used to be screwed on to his mother's door. His mother's steely firmness of character had driven him into the extravagance of an office, even after he had made over a thousand pounds out of the Llandidno lifeboat in less than three months, she would not listen to a proposal for going into a slightly larger house, of which one room might serve as an office, nor would she abandon her own labours as a seamstress. She said that since her marriage she had always lived in that cottage, and had always worked, and that she meant to die there, working, and that Denry could do what he chose. He was a bold youth, but not bold enough to dream of quitting his mother. Besides, his share of household expenses in the cottage was only ten shillings a week. So he rented the office, and he hired an office-boy, partly to convey to his mother that he should do what he chose, and partly for his own private amusement. He was thus at an age when fellows without imagination are fraying their cuffs for the enrichment of their elders, and glad if they can afford a cigar once a month, in possession of a business, business premises, a clerical staff, and a private carriage, drawn by an animal unique in the five towns. He was living on less than his income, and in the course of about two years, to a small extent by economies, and to a large extent by injudicious but happy investments, he had doubled the Llandidno thousand, and won the deference of the manager of the bank at the top of St. Luke's Square, one of the most unsentimental men who ever wrote refer to drawer on a cheque. And yet Denry was not satisfied. He had a secret woe, due to the fact that he was gradually ceasing to be a card, and that he was not multiplying his capital by two every six months. He did not understand the money market, nor the stock market, nor even the financial article in the signal. But he regarded himself as a financial genius— and deemed that as a financial genius he was vegetating, and as for setting the town on fire, of painting it scarlet, he seemed to have lost the trick of that. 2. And then, one day, the populace saw on his office door, beneath his name-board, another sign. Five Town Universal Thrift Club, Secretary and Manager E. H. Machin. An idea had visited him. Many tradesmen formed slate clubs, goose clubs, turkey clubs, whisky clubs, in the autumn for Christmas. Their humble customers paid so much a week to the tradesmen, who charged them nothing for keeping it, and at the end of the agreed period they took out the total sum in goods, dead or alive, eatable, drinkable, or wearable. Denry conceived a universal slate club. He meant it to embrace each of the five towns— he saw forty thousand industrial families paying weekly instalments into his slate club. He saw the slate club entering into contracts with all the principal tradesmen of the entire district, so that the members of the slate club could shop with slate club tickets practically where they chose. He saw his slate club so powerful that no tradesman could afford not to be in relations with it. He had induced all Flandino to perform the same act daily for nearly a whole season, and he now wished to induce all the vast five towns to perform the same act to his profit for all eternity. And he would be a philanthropist into the bargain. He would encourage thrift in the working man and the working man's wife. He would guard the working man's money for him, 
and to save trouble to the working man he would call at the working man's door for the working man's money further as a special inducement and to prove superior advantages to ordinary slate clubs he would allow the working man to spend his full nominal subscription to the club as soon as he had actually paid only half of it thus after paying ten shillings to denry the working man could spend a pound in denry's chosen shops and denry would settle with the shops at once while collecting the balance weekly at the working man's door but this privilege of anticipation was to be forfeited or postponed if the working man's earlier payments were irregular and denry would bestow all these wondrous benefits on the working man without any charge whatsoever every penny that members paid in members would draw out the affair was enormously philanthropic denry's modest remuneration was to come from the shopkeepers upon whom his scheme would shower new custom they were to allow him at least twopence in the shilling discount on all transactions which would be more than sixteen per cent on his capital and he would turn over his capital three times a year he calculated that out of fifty per cent per annum he would be able to cover working expenses and a little over of course he had to persuade the shopkeepers he drove his mule to hanbridge and began with bostock's the largest but not the most distinguished drapery house in the five towns he succeeded in convincing them on every point except that of his own financial stability bostock's indicated their opinion that he looked far too much like a boy to be financially stable his reply was to offer to deposit fifty pounds with them before starting business and to renew the sum in advance as quickly as the members of his club should exhaust it checks talk he departed with bostock's name at the head of his list and he used them as a clinching argument with other shops but the prejudice against his youth was strong and general yes tradesmen would answer what you say is all right but you're so young as if to insinuate that a man must be either a rascal or a fool until he is thirty just as he must be either a fool or a physician after he's forty nevertheless he had soon compiled a list of several score shops his mother said why don't you grow a beard here you spend money on razors strops soaps and brushes besides a quarter of an hour of your time every day and cutting yourself all to keep yourself from having something that would be the greatest help to you in business with a beard you'd look at least thirty-one your father had a splendid beard and so could you if you chose this was high wisdom but he would not listen to it the truth is he was getting somewhat dandiacal at length his scheme lacked naught but what denry called a right down good starting shove in a word a fine advertisement to fire it off now he could have had the whole of the first page of the signal at that period for five and twenty pounds but he had been so accustomed to free advertisements of one sort or another that the notion of paying for one was loathsome to him then it was that he thought of the countess of chell who happened to be staying at knype if he could obtain that great aristocrat that ex-mayoress that lovely witch that benefactor of the district to honour his thrift club as a patroness success was certain everybody in the five towns sneered at the countess and called her a busybody she was even dubbed interfering iris iris being one of her eleven christian names the five towns was fiercely democratic in theory 
In practice the Countess was worshipped. Her smile was worth at least five pounds, and her invitation to tea was priceless. She could not have been more sincerely adulated in the United States, the home of social equality. Denry said to himself, "'And why shouldn't I get her name as patroness? I will have her name as patroness.' Hence the expedition to Snade Hall, one of the ancestral homes of the Earls of Chell. 3. He had been to Snade Hall before many times, like the majority of the inhabitants of the five towns, for by the generosity of its owner Snade Park was always open to the public. To picnic in Snade Park was one of the chief distractions of the five towns on Thursday and Saturday afternoons but he had never entered the private gardens. In the midst of the private gardens stood the hall, shut off by immense iron palisades, like a lion in a cage at the zoo. On the autumn afternoon of his historic visit, Denry passed with qualms through the double gates of the palisade, and began to crunch the gravel of the broad drive that led in a straight line to the overwhelming palladian façade of the hall. Yes, he was decidedly glad that he had not brought his mule. As he approached nearer and nearer to the Countess's front door, his arguments in favour of the visit grew more and more ridiculous. Useless to remind himself that he had once danced with the Countess at the municipal ball, and amused her to the giggling point, and restored her lost fan to her. Useless to remind himself that he was a quite exceptional young man, with a quite exceptional renown, and the equal of any man or woman on earth. Useless to remind himself that the Countess was notorious for her affability, and also for her efforts to encourage the true welfare of the five towns. The visit was grotesque. He ought to have written. He ought at any rate to have announced his visit by a note. Yet only an hour earlier he had been arguing that he could most easily capture the Countess by storm, with no warning or preparations of any kind. Then, from a lateral path, a closed carriage and pair drove rapidly up to the hall, and a footman bounced off the hammercloth. Denry could not see through the carriage, but under it he could distinguish the skirts of someone who had got out of it. Evidently the Countess was just returning from a drive. He quickened his pace, for at heart he was an audacious boy. "'She can't eat me,' he said. This assertion was absolutely irrefutable and yet there remained in his bold heart an irrational fear that after all she could eat him. Such is the extraordinary influence of a Palladian façade. After what seemed several hours of torture, entirely novel in his experience, he skirted the back of the carriage, and mounted the steps to the portal. And although the coachman was innocuous, being apparently carved in stone, Denry would have given a ten-pound note to find himself suddenly in his club, or even in church. The masonry of the hall rose up above him like a precipice. He was searching for a bell-knob in the face of the precipice, when a lady suddenly appeared at the doors. At first he thought it was the Countess, and that heart of his began to slip down the inside of his legs. But it was not the Countess. "'Well?' demanded the lady. She was dressed in black. "'Can I see the Countess?' he inquired. The lady stared at him. He handed her his professional card, which lay waiting already in his waistcoat pocket. "'I will ask my lady,' said the lady in black. Denry perceived from her accent that she was not English. 
she disappeared through a swinging door, and then Denry most clearly heard the Countess's own authentic voice, saying in a pettish, disgusted tone, "'Oh, bother!' And he was chilled. He seriously wished that he had never thought of starting his confounded Universal Thrift Club. After some time, the carriage suddenly drove off, presumably to the stables. As he was now within the hollow of the porch, a sort of cave at the foot of the precipice, he could not see along the length of the façade. Nobody came to him. The lady who had promised to ask my lady whether the latter could see him did not return. He reflected that she had not promised to return. She had merely promised to ask a question. As the minutes passed, he grew careless, or grew bolder, gradually dropping his correct attitude of a man about town paying an afternoon call, and peered through the glass of the doors that divided him from the Countess. He could distinguish nothing that had life. One of his preliminary tremors had been caused by a fanciful vision of multitudinous footmen, through a double line of whom he would be compelled to walk in order to reach the Countess. But there was not even one footman. This complete absence of indoor footmen seemed to him remiss, not in accordance with centuries of tradition concerning life at Sneyd. Then he caught sight, through the doors, of the back of Jock, the Countess's carriage-footman, and the son of his mother's old friend. Jock was standing motionless at a half-open door to the right of the space between Denry's double doors and the next pair of double doors. Denry tried to attract Jock's attention by singular movements and strange noises of the mouth. But Jock, like his partner the coachman, appeared to be carven in stone. Denry decided that he would go in and have speech with Jock. They were on Christian name terms, or had been a few years ago. He unobtrusively pushed at the doors, and at the very same moment Jock, with a start, as though released from some spell, vanished away from the door to the right. Denry was now within. "'Jock!' he gave a whispering cry, rather conspiratorial in tone, and as Jock offered no response, he hurried after Jock through the door to the right. This door led to a large apartment— which struck Denry as being an idealization of a first-class waiting-room at a highly important terminal station. In a wall to the left was a small door, half open. Jock must have gone through that door. Denry hesitated. He had not properly been invited into the hall. But in hesitating he was wrong. He ought to have followed his prey without qualms. When he had conquered qualms and reached the further door, his eyes were met, to their amazement, by an immense perspective of great chambers. Denry had once seen a Pullman car, which had halted at Knipe Station, with a French actress on board. What he saw now presented itself to him as a train of Pullman cars, one opening into the other, constructed for giants. Each car was about as large as the large hall in Bursley Town Hall and like that auditorium had a ceiling painted to represent blue sky, milk-white clouds, and birds. But in the corners were groups of naked cupids, swimming joyously on the ceiling. In Bursley Town Hall there were no naked cupids. He understood now that he had been quite wrong in his estimate of the room by which he had come into this Versailles. Instead of being large, it was tiny, and instead of being luxurious, it was merely furnished with miscellaneous odds and ends left over from more important furnishings. It was indeed naught but a nondescript box of a hole, insignificantly wedged between the state apartments and the outer lobby. For an instant he forgot that he was in pursuit of Jock. 
Jock was perfectly invisible and inaudible. He must, however, have gone down the vista of the great chambers, and therefore Denry went down the vista of the great chambers after him, curiously expecting to have a glimpse of his long salmon-tinted coat or his cockaded hat popping up out of some corner. He reached the other end of the vista, having traversed three enormous chambers, of which the middle one was the most enormous and the most gorgeous. There were high windows everywhere to his right, and to his left in every chamber double doors with gilt handles of a peculiar shape. Windows and doors with equal splendour were draped in hangings of brocade. Through the windows he had a glimpse of the gardens in their autumnal colours, but no glimpse of a gardener. Then a carriage flew past the windows at the end of the suite, and he had a very clear, though a transient, view of two menials on the box-seat. One of those menials he knew must be Jock. Hence Jock must have escaped from the state suite by one of the numerous doors. Denry tried one door after another, and they were all fastened firmly on the outside. The gilded handles would turn, but the lofty and ornate portals would not yield to pressure. Mystified and startled, he went back to the place from which he had begun his explorations, and was even more seriously startled and more deeply mystified to find nothing but a blank wall where he had entered. Obviously he could not have penetrated through a solid wall. A careful perusal of the wall showed him that there was indeed a door in it, but that the door was artfully disguised by painting and other devices so as to look like part of the wall. He had never seen such a phenomenon before. A very small glass knob was the door's sole fitting. Denry turned this crystal, but with no useful result. In the brief space of time since his entrance, that door, and the door by which Jock had gone, had been secured by unseen hands. Denry imagined sinister persons bolting all the multitudinous doors, and inimical eyes staring at him through many keyholes. He imagined himself to be the victim of some fearful and incomprehensible conspiracy. Why, in the sacred name of common sense, should he have been imprisoned in the state suite? The only answer to the conundrum was that nobody was aware of his quite unauthorised presence in the state suite. But then why should the state suite be so suddenly locked up, since the Countess had just come in from a drive? It then occurred to him that instead of just coming in, the Countess had been just leaving. The carriage must have driven round from some humbler part of the hall, with the lady in black in it, and the lady in black, perhaps a lady's maid, alone had stepped out from it. The countess had been waiting for the carriage in the porch, and had fled to avoid being forced to meet the unfortunate Denry. Humiliating thought! The carriage had then taken her up at a side door, and now she was gone. Possibly she had left Snade Hall not to return for months, and that was why the doors had been locked. Perhaps everybody had departed from the hall, save one aged and deaf retainer. He knew, from historical novels which he had glanced at in his youth, that in every hall that respected itself, an aged and deaf retainer was invariably left solitary during the absences of the noble owner. He knocked on the small disguised door. His unique purpose in knocking was naturally to make a noise, but something prevented him from making a noise. He felt that he must knock decently, discreetly. He felt that he must not outrage the conventions. No result to this polite summoning. He attacked other doors. He attacked every door he could put his hands on. And gradually he lost his respect for decency in the conventions proper to halls, knocking loudly and more loudly. 
He banged. Nothing but sheer solidity stopped his sturdy hands from going through the panels. He so far forgot himself as to shake the doors with all his strength furiously. And finally he shouted, "'Hi there! Hi! Can't you hear?' Apparently the aged and deaf retainer could not hear. Apparently he was the deafest retainer that a peeress of the realm ever left in charge of a princely pile. "'Well, that's a nice thing,' Denry exclaimed, and he noticed that he was hot and angry. He took a certain pleasure in being angry. He considered that he had a right to be angry. At this point he began to work himself up into the state of not caring, into the state of despising Sneyd Hall and everything for which it stood, as for permitting himself to be impressed or intimidated by the lonely magnificence of his environment, he laughed at the idea, or more accurately he snorted at it. Scornfully he tramped up and down those immense interiors, doing the caged lion, and cogitating in quest of the right dramatic, effective act to perform in the singular crisis. Unhappily the carpets were very thick, so that though he could tramp, he could not stamp, and he desired to stamp. But in the connecting doorways there were expanses of bare, highly polished oak floor, and here he did stamp. The rooms were not furnished after the manner of ordinary rooms. There was no round or square table in the midst of each, with a checked cloth on it, and a plant in the centre. Nor in front of each window was there a small table with a large Bible thereon. The middle parts of the rooms were empty, save for a group of statuary in the largest room. Great armchairs and double-ended sofas were ranged about in straight lines, and among these here and there were smaller chairs, gilded from head to foot. Round the walls were placed long narrow tables, with tops like glass cases, and in the cases were all sorts of strange matters, such as coins, fans, daggers, snuff-boxes. In various corners white statues stood awaiting the day of doom, without a rag to protect them from the winds of destiny. The walls were panelled in tremendous panels, and in each panel was a formidable dark oil-painting. The mantelpieces were so preposterously high that not even a giant could have sat at the fireplace and put his feet on them. And if they had held clocks, as mantelpieces do, a telescope would have been necessary to discern the hour. Above each mantelpiece, instead of a looking-glass, was a vast picture. The chandeliers were overpowering in glitter and in dimensions. Near to a sofa, Denry saw a pile of yellow linen things. He picked up the topmost article, and it assumed the form of a chair. Yes, those articles were furniture covers. The hall, then, was to be shut up. He argued from the furniture covers that somebody must enter sooner or later to put the covers on the furniture. Then he did a few more furlongs up and down the vista, and sat down at the far end, under a window. Anyhow, there were always the windows. High though they were from the floor, he could easily open one, spring out, and slip unostentatiously away. But he thought he would wait until dusk fell. Prudence is seldom misplaced. The windows, however, held a disappointment for him. A mere bar, padlocked, prevented each one of them from being opened. It was a simple device. He would be under the necessity of breaking a plate-glass pane. For this enterprise he thought he would wait until black night. He sat down again. Then he made a fresh and noisy assault on all the doors. No result. He sat down a third time, 
and gazed into the gardens where the shadows were creeping darkly. Not a soul in the gardens. Then he felt a draught on the crown of his head, and looking aloft he saw that the summit of the window had a transverse glazed flap for ventilation, and that this flap had been left open. If he could have climbed up, he might have fallen out on the other side into the gardens and liberty. But the summit of the window was at least sixteen feet from the floor. Night descended. 4. At a vague hour in the evening, a stout woman, dressed in black, with a black apron, a neat violet cap on her head, and a small lamp in her podgy hand, unlocked one of the doors giving entry to the state rooms. She was on her nightly round of inspection. The autumn moon, nearly at full, had risen and was shining into the great windows, and in front of the furthest window she perceived in the radiance of the moonshine a pyramidal group somewhat in the style of a family of acrobats, dangerously arranged on the stage of a music-hall. The base of the pyramid comprised two settees. Upon these were several armchairs laid flat, and on the armchairs two tables covered with cushions and rugs. Lastly, in the way of inanimate nature, two gilt chairs. On the gilt chairs was something that unmistakably moved, and was fumbling with the top of the window. Being a stout woman, with a tranquil and sagacious mind, her first act was not to drop the lamp. She courageously clung to the lamp. "'Who's there?' said a voice from the apex of the pyramid. Then a subsidence began, followed by a crash and a multitudinous splintering of glass. The living form dropped onto one of the settees, rebounding like a football from its powerful springs. There was a hole as big as a coffin in the window. The living form collected itself, and then jumped wildly through that hole into the gardens. Denry ran. The moment had not struck him as a moment propitious for explanation. In a flash he had seen the ridiculousness of endeavouring to convince a stout lady in black that he was a gentleman paying a call on the Countess. He simply scrambled to his legs and ran. He ran aimlessly in the darkness, and sprawled over a hedge after crossing various flower-beds. Then he saw the sheen of the moon on Snaid Lake, and he could take his bearings. In winter all the five towns skate on Snaid Lake, if the ice will bear, and the geography of it was quite familiar to Denry. He skirted its east bank, plunged into Great Shendon Wood, and emerged near Great Shendon Station, on the line from Stafford to Knype. He inquired for the next train in the tones of innocency, and in half an hour was passing through Snaid Station itself. In another fifty minutes he was at home. The clock showed ten-fifteen. His mother's cottage seemed amazingly small. He said that he had been detained in Hanbridge on business, that he had had neither tea nor supper, and that he was hungry. Next morning he could scarcely be sure that his visit to Snaid Hall was not a dream. In any event, it had been a complete failure. 5. It was on this untriumphant morning that one of the tenants under his control, calling at the cottage to pay some rent overdue, asked him when the Universal Thrift Club was going to commence its operations. He had talked to the enterprise to all his tenants, for it was precisely with his tenants that he hoped to make a beginning. He had there a clientele ready to hand, and as he was intimately acquainted with the circumstances of each, he could judge between those who would be reliable and those to whom he would be obliged to refuse membership. The tenants, conclaving together of an evening on doorsteps, 
had come to the conclusion that the Universal Thrift Club was the very contrivance which they had lacked for years. They saw in it a cure for all their economic ills, and the gate to paradise. The dame who put the question to him on the morning after his defeat wanted to be the possessor of carpets, a new teapot, a silver brooch, and a cookery book, and she was evidently depending upon Denry. On consideration he saw no reason why the Universal Thrift Club should not be allowed to start itself by the impetus of its own intrinsic excellence. The dame was inscribed for three shares, paid eighteen pence entrance fee, undertook to pay three shillings a week, and received a document entitling her to spend three pounds eighteen shillings in sixty-five shops as soon as she had paid one pound nineteen shillings to Denry. It was a marvellous scheme. The rumour of it spread. Before dinner, Denry had visits from other aspirants to membership, and he had posted a cheque to Bostock's, but more from ostentation than necessity, for no member could possibly go into Bostock's with his coupons until at least two months had elapsed. But immediately after dinner, when the posters of the early edition of the Signal waved in the streets, he had material for other thought. He saw a poster as he was walking across to his office. The awful legend ran, "'Astounding attempted burglary at Snade Hall.' In buying the paper he was afflicted with a kind of ague, and the description of events at Snade Hall was enough to give ague to a negro. The account had been taken from the lips of Mrs. Gator, housekeeper at Snade Hall. She had related to a reporter how, upon going into the state suite before retiring for the night, she had surprised a burglar of Herculean physique and titanic proportions. Fortunately she knew her duty, and did not blench. The burglar had threatened her with a revolver, and then, finding such bluff futile, had deliberately jumped through a large plate-glass window and vanished. Mrs. Gator could not conceive how the fellow had effected an entrance. According to the reporter, Mrs. Gator said, effected an entrance, not got in. And here it may be mentioned that in the columns of the signal, burglars never get into a residence. Without exception, they invariably effect an entrance. Mrs. Gator explained further how the plans of the burglar must have been laid with the most diabolic skill, how he must have studied the daily life of the hall patiently for weeks, if not months, how he must have known the habits and plans of every soul in the place, and the exact instant at which the Countess had arranged to drive to Stafford to catch the London Express. It appeared that, save for four maidservants, a page, two dogs, three gardeners, and the kitchen clerk, Mrs. Gator was alone in the hall. During the late afternoon and early evening, they had all been to assist at a rat-catching in the stables, and the burglar must have been aware of this. It passed Mrs. Gator's comprehension how the criminal had got clear away out of the gardens and park, for to set up a hue and cry had been with her the work of a moment. She could not be sure whether he had taken any valuable property, but the inventory was being checked, though surely for her an inventory was scarcely necessary, as she had been housekeeper at Snade Hall for six-and-twenty years, and might be said to know the entire contents of the mansion by heart. The police were at work. They had studied footprints and debris. There was talk of obtaining detectives from London. Up to the time of going to press, no clue had been discovered, but Mrs. Gator was confident that a clue would be discovered, and of her ability to recognise the burglar when he should be caught. His features, as seen in the moonlight, were imprinted on her mind for ever. He was a young man, well-dressed. The Earl had telegraphed, 
offering a reward of twenty pounds for the fellow's capture. A warrant was out. So it ran on. Denry saw clearly all the errors of tact which he had committed on the previous day. He ought not to have entered uninvited, but having entered, he ought to have held firm in quiet dignity until the housekeeper came, and then he ought to have gone into full details with the housekeeper, producing his credentials, and showing her unmistakably that he was offended by the experience which somebody's gross carelessness had forced upon him. Instead of all that, he had behaved with simple stupidity, and the result was that a price was upon his head. Far from acquiring moral impressiveness and influential aid by his journey to Snade Hall, he had utterly ruined himself as a founder of a universal thrift-club. You cannot conduct a thrift-club from prison, and a sentence of ten years does not inspire confidence in the ignorant mob. He trembled at the thought of what would happen when the police learnt from the countess that a man with a card, on which was the name of Machin, had called at Snade just before her departure. However, the police never did learn this from the Countess, who had gone to Rome for the autumn. It appeared that her maid had merely said to the Countess that a man had called, and also that the maid had lost the card. Careful research showed that the burglar had been disturbed before he had opportunity to burgle, and the affair, after raising a terrific bother in the district, died down. Then it was that an article appeared in the Signal, signed by Denry, and giving a full picturesque description of the state apartments at Snade Hall. He had formed a habit of occasional contributions to the signal. This article began, "'The recent sensational burglary at Snade Hall has drawn attention to the magnificent state apartments of that unique mansion. As very few but the personal friends of the family are allowed a glimpse of these historic rooms, they being, of course, quite close to the public,' we have thought that some account of them might interest the readers of the signal. On the occasion of our last visit, etc. He left out nothing of their splendour. The article was quoted as far as Birmingham in the Midlands Press. People recalled Denry's famous waltz with the Countess at the memorable dance in Bursley Town Hall, and they were bound to assume that the relations thus begun had been more or less maintained. They were struck by Denry's amazing discreet self-denial in never boasting of them. Denry rose in the market of popular esteem. Talking of Denry, people talked of the Universal Thrift Club, which went quietly ahead, and they admitted that Denry was of the stuff which succeeds, and deserves to succeed. But only Denry himself could appreciate fully how great Denry was, to have snatched such a wondrous victory out of such a humiliating defeat. His chin slowly disappeared from view under a quite presentable beard. But whether the beard was encouraged out of respect for his mother's sage advice, or with the object of putting the housekeeper of Snade Hall off the scent, if she should chance to meet Denry, who shall say? End of chapter 6「At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, 
we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.